Welcome to The Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university and college students, post-secondary students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. So glad you're here. Hey friends, thanks for tuning to this week's podcast. We're excited about sharing with you last week's Convergence, A Spirituality Walking with Mark Buchanan. We hope this encourages you on your walk to Christ. You good? You happy? Okay. I'll try not to mess all that up, Daniel. You'd be, you'd be surprised that uh, you, you can speak for years and years and still not understand how the technology works. And <laughs> Very good to be here. Sarah and Tina, thanks so much for leading us. Sure. Kelly, thanks for inviting me. You mentioned as a scuba diver. That song, we are, You Are the Air I Breathe, mm-hmm. came out... Um, whatever number of years it is, and uh, I just bought a new piece of diving equipment that either failed or I misread when I was 70 feet down and sucked my last breath out of my tank at 70 feet. And I was diving with somebody who's about 30 feet ahead of me, so I had to torpedo over, and there's a whole protocol that you learn when you dive if you run out of air, uh, how to take hold of another diver, and everyone has a, a second reg, they call it, so you can pull air from their tank, but you have to do uh, usually too quick of an ascent then, so you put yourself at risk of bends and all that. But anyhow, that Sunday in church, we sang that song, and it never meant so much to me, <laughs> uh, having lost air at 70 feet of depth in the darkness of the ocean. You are the air I breathe, and every time we sing it, I think um, that desperation I felt for air, I, I, I really want, I mean, that's the reality of my life. That's how desperately I need God. I just don't always think it or feel it. And so thanks. Thanks for playing it, and thanks for um, this opportunity to be here. I came to faith at 21 at uh, University of British Columbia, so... Um, basically, I am a sucker if you say, come and talk to a bunch of students. <laughs> I'm, I, I shouldn't have given you that. <laughs> I just want to be among you because I, it was such an amazing time of my life to grow up in this pagan home. It really was. <laughs> and then uh, started reading the Bible, and I met somebody I'd never... I don't know if you, some of you maybe came to faith later in life. Um, if you've never met Christ and you meet him for the first time reading the Gospels, you never recover from that. There's nobody like it. There's no one like it. C.S. Lewis, who I, I, I read much later, says, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Nothing in between. He's either just making stuff up, lying, or he was nuts, should have had meds, or he was what he said. Because nobody goes around. He's not a good teacher if he wasn't also Lord. You have no option. He was a nice person, but he was a bit deluded about the lordship thing. 
I so intuitively got that. As a little pagan reading the Bible, I thought I either reject him totally or embrace him with everything I have and follow him wherever he goes the rest of my life. I've never looked back on that. In fact, I would not trade my best day of being a pagan for my worst being a Christian. And there's been some bad days being a Christian. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I would say with Paul, all that's rubbish compared with knowing Christ. I wasn't even going to say that, but I just something about the song stirred it. I talked to you about walking, and at the end of the evening, um, Kelly's generously offered to buy copies of books for all y'all. It's called God Walk. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago, and it's really on this, it's a daily thing. It's a dailiness. It's a, it's a miracle of walking. There's a story in John's Gospel, chapter 5, where Jesus leaves a party. <laughs> if you read the context, he's at a party and everybody's having fun and he just like gets bored with it or whatever and he goes out in the streets and he comes to the worst part of the city in Jerusalem. It's, it's um, the Sheep Gate and it's a pool there beside Bethsaida and, and all the broken people. It's like that part of Calvary <laughs> where all the broken people gather. And most people don't want to go there. Jesus, his compassion leads him, and he goes among this group, and he sees one guy in particular, and somehow I think his heart's just going out. And he says, ask somebody, how long has this guy been this way? And somebody tells him, 38 years, can't get up, can't walk. Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? You probably know the story. Many of you know the story. He's like, ah, you know, it's really hard. Life's hard. Nobody helps me. <laughs> He's lost, I think, the imagination for wellness. I don't think he's making excuses. I just think if 38 years, I mean, the, the life expectancy was 45, 50 of that culture that time. I mean, he's an old man already. He's lost the imagination of wellness. And uh, so he doesn't say he wants to get well. And Jesus just does that thing, that sort of gruff mercy. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And next thing you know, this guy's on his feet, rolling that thing up, and walking. The miracle of it is not simply whatever genetic or injury or whatever was instantly healed that he could get up on his feet. But I've known people who have taken an injury, car accident or whatnot, and couldn't get on their feet for six months, a year, whatever. It's months of physical therapy, building the muscle back, the bone density that has sort of atrophied in that time. Just even learning your balance again. It's a really difficult thing. You ever seen a baby walk? I mean, it's like, you know, it's just getting that rhythm, one foot. In one instant, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He is. <laughs> he's Buster Keaton or whatever. He's Charlie Chaplin. I mean, he's, he's, he's just making the moves. What an extraordinary miracle it must have been to behold that. I would actually love for tonight you to recover the miracle of you walking. Uh, we don't think about it until we lose it. And I start the book with a friend of mine who lost in one instance, his ability to walk. 
And then later I have a whole chapter on those who can't walk. And I, I, with this man, friend's permission, he lets me tell a story. I tell the story of Christopher Reeve, the first Superman, who in one instant lost the ability to walk. We don't think about what a miracle it was that we all, however we got here, by bus or train or car or whatever, at some point you had to carry yourself the rest of the way. I think about that. If somebody walked in the room that they were carrying a little infant, we would think nothing of it. That's, of course, it would be weird if they weren't. If somebody's carrying a three-year-old, we'd think, okay, the kid's tired. A 10-year-old would think the kid's sick. A 28-year-old? Somebody comes in, we'd ask questions. <laughs> like, what, what is, like, is this a prank? Or? But all of you came in carrying yourself, and you never thought. And I, I, don't sh I mean, I didn't think about it until I started to think about it. This miracle, we've made all these devices, all these things that carry us, boats and cars and buses and trains and planes. And but if you have legs, at some point, every part of your day, the dailiness of it, you have to carry yourself the rest of the way. I got really intrigued by that a few years ago, uh, partly because my publisher was really bearing down on me to meet a deadline and contractual <laughs> obligation. And I thought, I don't, like, what do I even want to write about? Because uh, I've written a lot of books, and at some point you're just like, eh, I don't know. You know, it's a lot of work writing a book. And I realized I walk all the time. Sarah, you and I have this in common. I just walk all the time. I love walking. So much happens when I walk. And I'm not even talking about the physical benefits, so I do explore that in the book. So much happens in terms of the inner life and my attentiveness. There's a great book uh, quoted extensively in God Walk by uh, Kosaku Koyama, a remarkable Japanese theologian from the 70s, one of the first evangelical theologians to do really, um, really vital contextual theology. Kosaka Koyama wrote a book in, I think, 72, 73, called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God. And his argument is God is a walker. He's always been a walker. <laughs> he doesn't drive. He doesn't take planes. When we see God, he's coming, you know, and then when he comes incarnate in Jesus, what does he do? He walks. And the, the pace of walking is roughly three miles an hour or, or you know, whatever, five kilometers an hour. And his whole contention, it actually revolutionized uh, missions in some parts of the world, his book in 1972 or three when it came out, uh, is if you actually want to be effective in life and ministry, you've got to slow down. And you've got to start taking things at a slower pace. It seems like in the, in the time since then, we've stopped listening. <laughs> we're going fast, fast, fast. Bob and I were just talking uh, about some of the shifts that have happened in recent years in our life. I used to be a pastor of a fairly large church. And, uh, and then the last few years, I've been teaching at Ambrose. And uh, but my wife and I also have a ministry with indigenous women, second stage of recovery. You know a little bit about this, I think, Sarah. And, amazing women that everybody doesn't see. Uh, you should see what it's like for an indigenous woman going into the medical system. It's just appalling. 
because if they see them at all, they, they have a stereotype already. And the stereotype is, oh, you came here for drugs. And so uh, God opened my wife and my heart, and so we have this ministry, and we only allow five women at a time. And I don't know who gets more transformed, them or us. <laughs> Most extraordinary women I've ever met in my whole life. Somebody who was opposed to her ministry described them in an angry letter to us uh, about these fragile women. I knew at that moment they'd never met an indigenous woman. If you had a thousand words to pick from to describe an indigenous woman, the very last one you would pick is fragile. Vulnerable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fragile? No. Most resilient people I've ever met. And so, but we realized uh, if this is going to work, and it does, it's breathtaking to watch what happens when we slow down. And we walk every day with the women, <laughs> literally, physically walk. And they come, and they're scared, and they're sick, and they don't trust, and they may lie to you about a whole bunch of stuff. And a few months later, uh, if they need to gain weight, they've gained. If they need to lose it, they've lose it. They glow. Their skin glows. And they're so alive. <laughs> but it wouldn't happen if we didn't slow down. I want to commend to you the dailiness of walking. There's a story at the beginning. I actually just read it at the beginning of the Bible. Uh, a guy named Enoch. Things have kind of fallen apart, you know, in the world as we know it. Apples been eaten or whatever fruit it was. Probably not an apple. You can go buy a table full of, you know, bowl of apples and it's probably strawberries. <laughs> because I can't walk by a bowl of strawberries and not. Anyhow, just that's a little theological speculation. Uh, Genesis five, and it's beginning. I think I think it's verse nine, but I'm getting to that age. Uh, Enoch had lived. Uh, no, no, no. That's not what I want. I want. That's Enoch. Where is this Enoch fellow? Five, five, five. Gosh, you think I would be better at this eh, at my age? Okay, here we go, 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. It's interesting language, he eh? walked with God. Um, last time we heard about God walking was in the garden. And then I'll fall apart. And it's, 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 if it's saying the way back to the intimacy, the knowing, um, the deep unto deep fellowship, the way back is walk with him. I'm going to make the argument that this is not a metaphor. <laughs> But think about it, 65 years old. Of course, these pe people lived extraordinary lo long ages back in those days. Um, 365, he dies out of nothing. Methuselah's son was like a thousand or something, right? But, but I mean, can you imagine though at 65? I mean, you just all you're thinking about is getting your golf handicap down or something, right? It's like, hey, honey, I was you know, at, the, at the Harley store today, and I'm thinking, you know, like, like I'm nearly 65 for crying out loud, and I'm just like, 
you know, I'm looking at rent, you know, uh, properties in the Okanagan and all that sort of stuff. And, and can you imagine you're like just kind of really starting to dream how, you know, how footloose and fancy free you're going to be. And then the wife says, oh, honey, the rabbit died, which is an old way of saying I'm pregnant. <laughs> 65, and you're like, uh, what, say that again? <laughs> 65. And it says he, and when he, when he finds out he, he's, he's going to have a baby, he starts walking with God. I mean, wouldn't you, Daniel? Wouldn't you? I mean, you think about it, like I'm honest. I think I, I, I think I'm being funny, but I, I actually think it's actually saying, what gets your attention? What, where, where do you suddenly realize your life? Everything has a ripple effect. Then every decision he makes, every word he says, every way, every dollar he makes and spends, it's not anymore unto himself. Everything has ripple effect at that point. And then more kids are coming along. Something gets your attention at some point and saying, my life is not just about me. And how am I going to manage that? And Enoch starts walking with God. <laughs> and I don't think it's just a metaphor. Twice it mentions it. Walk faithfully with God. I got so intrigued by this idea of walking with God when I was getting ready to write this book. And I started to realize that it's one of the primary words that the Bible uses to, uh, about a relationship with God. Just go end to end. First of all, the God who walks in the garden in the cool of the day, it starts there, but Enoch, Noah walked with God. Uh, it's interesting, just before this story, Cain, who's the one who defies God, and he's a restless wanderer. He's out there walking, but it's not with God. We get uh, into the New Testament particularly, and both John and Paul especially love the word walk. You walk by faith. You walk in the light. You walk in obedience. You walk in the name of the Lord. It's on and on and on. And as I say, I first thought, that's just a lovely metaphor. But then I thought, these guys are walkers. <laughs> so they're getting around. Paul needs to go to Thessalonica. He doesn't you know, get Uber. He walks there. I mean, sometimes he takes a boat. because Jesus was a walker. And I, my, I begin to start to think of my experience. What happens when I walk? And my deepest relationships have been formed by walking, literally, literally walking with people. Stuff opens, right, Sarah? Stuff opens. It, it's somehow when you're shoulder to shoulder, but there's an intimacy there that's even greater sometimes than face to face with people. And I started thinking, oh, you know what? It solved the problem for me, Kelly. And you know what the problem was? Christianity is the most incarnational of world religions. It, it takes on flesh. It's not ethereal. And yet the most incarnational faith in the, uh, of all the world religions doesn't have a corresponding physiology. We have no yoga. We have no tai chi. We have no karate. Other traditions have developed a corresponding physiology that somehow, uh, course, you know, 
enhances the spirituality. And I thought, not, why not Christianity? Why not the most incarnational faith on the, faith, faith on the, uh, on the whole planet? Did we not say, and now the physical practice that you should engage in <laughs> as a Christ follower is, you know, here it is. And then I realized, oh, wait, 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 it's, it's always been there. It's walking. Walking. Just walk. So, uh, I just got intrigued. And I started thinking, I was walking a lot anyhow, I just started being mindful when I walked. And I began to realize there's so much going on here. Uh, the physical benefits are, um, you know, I mean, well, well established. That uh, not just in terms of um, just staying healthy and heart health and, and uh, managing weight and all those sort of things, but uh, mounting evidence that if you walk 30, 40 minutes a day, you're less susceptible to depression, to anxiety, to um, um, bone decay. One Harvard doctor that I quote, I forget her name, but she says, if, if, you could, um, if you could come up with a medication and she lists the, all the benefits of, you know, you got better sleep, you, you, you kept weight, you, you, you dropped weight and you kept it off, uh, you felt more alive, you had more energy, and this is like 12 or 15 things she lists. If you could make a pill that would do all of that and had no side effects, it would fly off the shelves. She says, but we have it. It's 30 minutes of walking a day, and nobody's really taking it up. <laughs> what I want to talk in the last bit, and then we'll open up for questions, about two of the biggest benefits that I have discovered in walking. And I think that everyone in the room actually has capacity to walk, but I'm always, again, sensitive if somebody doesn't. And want to say that I'm not saying that these are the only, these benefits are only available through walking. They just, it's walking is my, my fastest route to these benefits. I just want to talk about two. And uh, virtually every time I go for a walk, without even intending it, the, these things will, will come about, but often I will intend it. I'll be mindful. The first is, is I actually, uh, I, I face the reality that I'm the chief of sinners when I walk. And that may not seem like a very sort of enticing reason to walk. But I would suggest that um, the thing that actually keeps it I'm desperate for you, I'm desperate for you, <laughs> is a realization of how, how deeply we need the grace and mercy of God every day. So Paul writes, I am the chief of sinners. That's in 1 Timothy 3 somewhere, 18 or something. As you probably know, Paul, Paul began uh, as this angry little man. <laughs> uh, if you didn't think like him, he wanted to kill you. No, nobody in the world exists like that now, but <laughs> he's just this angry little man just going around raging at everybody. Um, then he has, uh, and he's right, he's right. Nobody, everybody's wrong, he's right. And he comes to Christ, and uh, he's still got a little bit of that little you know, arrogance. So he says... When he first meets the, the apostles, they added nothing to my teaching. 
a few years later, he calls himself, you know, I'm kind of like we're kind of, you know, kind of equal. <laughs> a few years later, again, he says, I'm the least of these guys. Near the end of his life, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I don't think he's certainly, you know, he's growing in self-loathing. I think he's growing in his understanding, I need the grace of God every day, the thorn in my side, I need the grace every day. I am so messed up, I am so hooped. If God isn't for me every single day. And there's something I find refreshing, not about, it's not neurotic, but, but to say, um, God, I need you again. <laughs> I'm the chief of sinners. I should be more grown up than I am. <laughs> I should have better attitudes about lots of stuff. I shouldn't keep thinking those stupid, vengeful thoughts or whatever. <laughs> I am the chief of sinners. By the way, some of you, uh, um, you know, you're at that age where most of the sort of sin sinful stuff going on in your life is, is uh, you know, stuff of the flesh. and Not necessarily you're indulging it, but that's what you, you feel, the temptation. Get, get to my age. And uh, it's sort of still there, but it's sort of like way over there. It's the stuff of the heart. The entitlement and the bitterment. Just the tiredness. Just need the grace every single day. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I start my walk, uh, is the first voice in my head virtually every time is the voice of the accuser, which is different from what I'm talking about. But you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that voice that doesn't have any good thing to say about you. And it condemns you. And it mocks you. And it says, you're an idiot. And that voice I actually have to push back. It's in my head too. Voice of the accuser. That's not the voice of God. But I don't push it back by saying what I will go to later, you know, on the beloved and all that sort of thing. I push it back by saying, um, no, I'm not on any of that, but I, I, I'm a sinner desperately in need of the grace of God. <laughs> and there's a famous story about G.K. Chesterton back in the uh, early 20th century. London Times, I think it was, sponsored... Um, or they invited all of the big thinkers and writers of the day to weigh in on the question, what is wrong with the world? So they approached Bertrand Russell and George Bernard Shaw and all these sort of very smart people. And they wrote these lengthy, lengthy, you know, five, six, eight thousand word essays on what is wrong with the world. And they implicated politics and economics and, you know, various people. And uh, they asked G.K. Chesterton, would you write an essay? What is wrong with the world? Uh, he submitted this to them. Dear sirs, what is wrong with the world? Question mark. I am. Dear <laughs> sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Um, I love that. <laughs> and it's not the voice of the accuser at that point. So it's like, like I, it's owning your stuff. It's a frank honesty, a courage in the face of God to say, um, all the things the devil's saying about me are untrue, but I actually am kind of a train wreck. <laughs> I need you. So I actually go there. I, I, honestly, probably the first three to five minutes of my walking is the accuser making all that noise in my head. And I just get behind me, Satan. But then I say, God, 
this and this and this. I'm very specific, actually, very specific. It's like this thing I said to my wife last night. What? You know, what am I still doing that for? Um, Lord, I need your grace. I need your grace. So I would really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you what it was like for me, and maybe it could be something you could try. Um, and am I all alone? I, I'm sort of feeling like I'm the only one who has that voice of you're an idiot, you're stupid, and uh, you, you have it too? Okay, great. You and me. Okay, fantastic. So I'm not all alone in the room. Uh, it's just you and me, but, but uh, uh, it, it, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, I just feel like, yeah, that was a really cool connection thing that happened there. Um, yeah, d deny that voice, refuse that voice, uh, push that voice. That voice has no truth in it, but the voice that says, however, <laughs> um, I, I do want to address this with you. And, uh, and just kind of be in that place where I, I listen basically to the voice, and sometimes the voice of rebuke from God, um, the, 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 vo the voice of uh, admonition, the voice of correction, always, always with, but my grace is sufficient for that, always. The second thing, and I always, uh, if, I, if I'm not naturally going there, and I often do, I'll, I'll actually urge myself into it, is the other side of it is when I walk, it's the place where I most nurture the sense I am the, the one Jesus loves. Life of the beloved. And, um, and I wish that I, it was the first voice in my head, but I, I don't seem to have it, so I just go with the thing that, okay, we're going to deal with all the problems in me, and I'm going to confess them again to God. By the way, I also have a friend... And we can, we walk together, but he's in another city. And uh, almost every week, we phone each other and spend an hour, and we, we confess to each other. Uh, he takes half of the time, and I take the other half, and we confess our stuff. And that's been very good, too. And then we pray for each other. But the other thing is this, I am the one Jesus loves. That's, of course, the language that John uses. Uh, it's his little code name, <laughs> code reference. But John is not saying I'm the special one because it's John who in 1 John comes to this insight, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. John was transformed by the love of Jesus. And I think that he uh, lived in this identity of being the one Jesus loved so that he actually could share that message with the rest of us. Uh, you too, you too, you too. And his transformation was profound. Here was this guy. Um, he was almost as angry as Paul was before Paul got converted. He was just an angry man. Him and his bro, bro, bro James. Sons of thunder, Jesus called them. <laughs> and you remember some of the stories about them? They're like, I want, you know, give me the seat over there. Oh, these people, these Samaritan people were mean to me, and could you bring some hellfire down? Can you, you know, can you get a weaponized drone over there and just kind of smoke them out? And he's like, you guys, you guys, you guys. So he's such an angry, angry man. He uh, becomes known, the tradition is, as the apostle of love. And of course, that's owing largely to what he says in First. John, love, love, love. We know we're loved. We love because he first loved us. You can't, 
You can't say you love God if you don't love one another. It's just oozing love. And I think when he says, I'm the one Jesus loves, that he was, it was a discovery of his life that he wanted the rest of us to figure out. This is so extraordinary to me. This has actually been the biggest point of growth in my Christian life in the last, actually since I came here to Ambrose. I got to thinking, if I could go back into pastoral ministry, not that I'm particularly attracted to that for various reasons, but I would totally change how I do ministry. Uh, I think we're trying to do discipleship in our churches without actually having people hear the voice of the Father say, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, with you am I well pleased. I think if they could hear the voice that was spoken over Jesus and everything that Jesus gets, we inherit. And I think if, if we could all actually hear, believe, live in, walk in, breathe, embrace afresh every time, every day, the Father saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love with well-pleased, I think all the disciples stuff would just would take care of itself. We're, we're, we're coming up with brilliant programs, and we teach people all sorts of incredible stuff, but the thing is, is they're all trying to perform their way into love rather than just live that out of love. Here's how I, 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 my wife actually figured this out in a really profound way. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, when Jesus uh, is baptized, that's where, you know, that's the scene where the Father says, this is my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. The next voice Jesus hears is he's driven out into the desert and the next voice he hears is the devil. And the devil says this. So Jesus is walking in into the desert. He's heard the Father say, you're my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. Then he's staggering out in the desert. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's like, the devil comes up, and the first thing that the devil is the first voice Jesus hears after he's heard his father, and he says this: "The devil says, if you are the son, prove it." Everything depends on which voice you listen to. If you have an if clause. You'll be striving and striving and frustrated and all that, all that knowing that you're chief of sinners will just become accusation and shame and a sense of condemnation. But when you know that the Father's already said, you are the son, you are the daughter, I love you, with you I'm well pleased, then you don't have to prove anything. You just have to live it out. You have to prove it. And that's the voice that I um, always make sure that every on uh, my daily walk, I, I listen to that. <laughs> I receive that afresh. I embrace that with everything I have. And I come back, and even though God's almost every day showing me something that, son, we can work on this. <laughs> I come back and I know, as I know, as I know, as I know, I'm loved, love, love, love. And I'm so motivated to do whatever it needs to do and I make right what's wrong and all of those sorts of things. And that's just a walk away. Walk away. I'd like to take questions now.
Yes, Bob. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've done two, two times of walking. One is with, uh, you know, sound in my head from yeah. some walking that was just walking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. We do. Wow. Uh, and then there's, it sounds like what you're talking about is, aside from the physical uh, yeah. point, is actually protecting from silence. Yeah, yeah. And the walk becomes yeah. a way to do that. Yeah. yeah. Bob, so well, we'll put, and, and I am not, I, I, I think that um, what an op awesome opportunity when you're walking, you put whatever those things in your, he your head or your ear, and you listen to podcasts or music or whatnot. It just doesn't work for me because I am, uh, I'm actually going from maximum attentiveness to what's on inside of me and what's around me. And I don't want to distract, I don't want to be somewhere else than other where I am in that. And that's, Again, my personal preference and choice, and I'm also old, and I actually remember what a Walkman is. That's how old I am. Uh, so, so I'm not saying don't do that. I, I'm just saying I don't do that because I do want to protect the silence and the attentiveness, the presence of being present in my own body. Yeah. yeah. Can you speak more to that attentiveness? Why is that attentiveness valuable? Yeah, it's interesting. I have another book on um, Sabbath, and... Uh, Kelly mentioned this, and uh, for years I thought that the, the heart of Sabbath was stillness, and now I think it's attentiveness. And why I think it's important is that I think that, uh, especially because of all the devices and the speed, the, the, I mean the breakneck speed at which we move, and how quickly, I mean I think how many times in my life have I woken up in Thailand or... Europe or something, and that night I'm in my own bed. Like, that's bizarre. So the speed at which we move, and I think uh, one of the casualties of that speed and all of the distractive distraction is, is we, we lose attention. I often say to people when I'm talking about this, and I should have said it to you, um, if you're driving in and out of your neighborhood and that's the only thing you know about your neighborhood, you don't know your neighborhood. So you can live in a neighborhood for 20 years, drive in and out, you actually don't know it. Walk at once and you'll be stunned because you'll see it. <laughs> and I, so that's, uh, I just think attentiveness is really at the heart of um, our relationship with others, our relationship with God. It's a paying attention, it's a, it's, a, it's a sustained attention. And so much is undermining our attentiveness. Um, and, and so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm sort of just riffing on my feet here, but I, I really, we have to have more than ever before in history disciplines that enhance attentiveness, even just for an hour. And we're fully attentive, which also means being fully present, not somewhere else in our head. And I mean, isn't that the world we're living in, right? Like, like <laughs> sitting at a table with a bunch of people and you're all doing this? We're all somewhere else. So I, I really, um, I, I mean, we already know uh, physiologically as studies are, are mounting about this, what this is doing actually to our brains. It's rewiring them. And uh, some of it's kind of, is kind of good, the rewiring, because now we're actually a little more, we're, you know, we're, we're noticing some things that we never noticed. We're kind of like that ping sound. You know, we've got kind of like hunter instincts now, right? <laughs> But so much is being lost. So I, I would, yeah, I would commend you. And again, the walking for me is 
a primary way to kind of uh, practice attentiveness. I pay attention to inside, I pay attention to outside. If I'm with somebody, I really pay attention to them. And when I'm alone, I especially try to really hear God. Thank you. Yeah, Sarah, and then? The thing about walking is about time. And, and it's not the most efficient way. If we use walking, I would go to the moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, in, in former days, and this is one thing that would be different, likely, about, uh, you know, Paul or whatever. He was going somewhere. So he wasn't just going for walks. There was a sense of, we've got to get over to Troas or whatever, and so we've got to do some hoofing here. But Jesus is an interesting case. That, well, first of all, God walked in the cool of the garden. So there's a sense that it's just for the walk. It's just for the intimacy of the fellowship. But Jesus is particularly interesting, and Mark's gospel especially, because uh, Mark has the most, and, and then Jesus blazed off over here, and he walked there, and he went over there. And so it's just like, he's just like all over the place. If you actually map out his itinerary, it, none of it makes sense. <laughs> so it's like, okay, like if, I, if you're trying to be efficient, you go from here to there, and then there, you don't go all the way over here and then come back here and take over here. Like, it's just the weirdest thing to draw it on a map. And I started to think, he's all about the walking. He's not about the getting there. And so I think that that's some recovery of the sense of, well, I mean, who walks to get anywhere anymore, really? You know, we get, like, even uh, my lovely daughter lives in Victoria, and for a while she lived, uh, she worked right in James Bay, which is right where the Parliament Building is. You know, Victoria—it's one of the most pretty, prettiest areas of Victoria. And it would have been maybe about a 20-minute walk from her apartment to get there. She never did it once. She drove every time. And I'm like, honey, you know, like just even make it. Per but nobody's to, to walking just to, you know, to get someplace unless it's the mailbox and the mailbox half a block away. So I, I do think, it, it, one of the things, Sarah, that's really interesting, and I've, been, I've had a, a long fascination with this, is I think the biggest um, almost idol in our age is utilitarianism. That we, we have to justify what we do on the basis of it's useful. And I am actually advocating, and I do this a lot in my courses, for um, sort of a, a holy waste of time. Uh, Marva Dawn describes worship as a royal waste of time. But recovering a sense that sometimes things are worth doing for no utilitarian reason at all, just because they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. oh. You had a question back there, and if you could tell me your name. Hey, Jody. Hi, Jody. Okay. I think uh, that's a fantastic, Jody. Such a good question. I don't know if, there, if there's a formulaic thing, a balance. Uh, 
the whole the whole end game is is uh, all spiritual disciplines are cultivating our union with Christ. So Christ has made the decision to join himself to you. He did that. And every spiritual discipline is, is you, you cultivate, you foster that union, that closeness. So I would say, what's doing that? <laughs> I would imagine some Bible reading is fairly important to that. But if you're deriving an enormous sense of connection with the Lord through walking, that's probably your go-to now. But by the way, it'll change through life. Uh, those of us who are older say, when I was younger, this was one of the primary ways I really sensed the presence of God. Uh, now I'm you know, at this stage where I started having kids or something, and it had to become this. But, and by the way, for, uh, you know, that age when we do have uh, children, one of the primary ways God makes himself available to us is through our children. That's so biblical, Matthew 18. Uh, you know, who's greatest in the kingdom? This little guy. <laughs> Unless you become like this little guy, uh, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. So the sense where God becomes accessible to us through the little people in our home. So, but but I, I say if that's rocking your world now, then yeah, just keep enjoying, enjoying intimacy with God through that. The scripture is just going to give you lots of stuff to meditate on and talk to the Lord about when you're, yeah. Thanks for the question. Yeah, tell me your name too. Kevin. Kevin. Yeah, I was just wondering what do you feel like is the difference in like that kind of attentiveness or that relationship with God in that moment when you're walking versus something else, like when you're meditating or if you're like hiking or jogging, yeah. like what is the movement and just walking especially that is like creating that attentiveness or connection versus something of like... Yeah, Evan, I don't, I don't know if I would even have, if, uh, have a way to a scale to compare them. Um, and I think it's going to be partly personality and body types and all those sorts of things. I'm intrigued by this Japanese theologian, Kosaka Koyama, who talks about the three-mile-an-hour God and the whole notion of the God who walks. And so if that, you know, if there's, if there's some, something to that, it would be like suggesting that physiologically we're more in sync with God in the walking. You know, I, I'm not going to make that sort of claim or stand, you know, uh, insist on it or something, but it, it just strikes me as an intriguing line of inquiry that it's possible if God's a walker, that we actually more sort of feel what it's like to be, you know, in the image of God in some ways, if we're actually walking. But I, I honestly don't. I mean, you know, I, I don't know even how I compare them. Yeah. I just meant for you personally. Like, oh, for me. Oh, like, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Would you say that kind of just like the movement? Yeah, it's, I think so. It's a rhythmic of it. Um, Think about I find about walking different, say from a strenuous hike or a run. And I, I think running. Why would people do that? But um, um, it is uh, I have to be um, walking is both mindful and mindless. So in a sense, I can I can uh, I don't have to be sitting there thinking, you know, which, which route am I taking so much, or oh my goodness, there's some roots you know there, and I better watch as I'm running through them or whatnot. 
it's a sense I can, I can turn my mind off, but I can also be really, really present to myself, so the mindfulness, which I don't find in those other things. And there's something about that liminal space of mindful, mindless that I, I connect more deeply with God in. Fabulous question. Wow, these are really... What's that? Nothing. Um, and your name, please. Kevin. Kevin, Kevin, thank you. Would you say that God has imbued the world with some degree of walkability? Because Ooh. what reason do all people enjoy learning about being hiked? Christians and non-Christians. What do they get, what do they gain from it? Yeah, like again, coming back to serious questions, we're not going anywhere in a sense anymore. Uh, we're just going out to walk and experience. No. I have never thought that, Kevin, but I think you might be right that there's a sense where God made the word walkable. There's a, there's a, you can, you can actually look. Yeah, you, what's that? Maybe that's why we take short, short long walks or short periods. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there, there's, um, uh, you can Google up walkable cities. Yeah. And and I, I I know instantly when I go to a city if it's walkable or not. You just have to walk around it and you realize, oh, this is super walkable or what the heck. It, um, and and so I, I love that idea that um, God, in a sense, made a walkable world. Like he does when you think about it. Like, there's, like I even found out, like when I moved here, like I'd drive through the Rockies and you'd look at these extraordinarily peaks, you know, like, like uh, um, Rundle or whatever. And thought, like, who would ever go up there? Well, you don't, you, you can walk up there. <laughs> you just have to go up the back edge of it, back side of it, right? And the sense that, like, even the most seemingly daunting in, in, in indomitable things are kind of walkable often. That's really intriguing. I like that thought. If I write another chapter of my book, I'll credit you and say, okay, a walkable world. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, and you ha I forgot your, to get your name for a second. Logan, right. I, I just want to be a little bit annoying. Yeah, absolutely. I love that because I, yeah. So Jesus came in on a donkey at one point. Right. What do you think of that? When he was well, he also, went, he also rode in boats and stuff like that, yeah. Uh, th that's part of the fulfillment of the Zechariah prophecy, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm not saying that he, it was a single only, but uh, there was other modes of transport in those times, the Romans were particularly resorting to them, especially if you were an officer. And he, other than the donkey and the boats, uh, just chose the way of walking. That was very annoying. Yeah. Yeah, the boats were optional. Well, that's really interesting about that. Like, I actually touched on that in the, in the, in the book that, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the one time where the normal way to get across is you go, by boat, he walks on water. <laughs> and, and then there's other times where he goes by boat and he just falls asleep. Like, it's like, oh, this is boring. It's <laughs> a terrible way to get around or whatever. <laughs> well, you done? Yes. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. Right. Thanks so much. Right. And that's a wrap. Thanks for catching this week's Convergence. We hope to see you for this Thursday's Convergent Conversations at 7 p.m. at Brentview Baptist Church. Let's talk the walk and walk the talk. See you there.